Welcome to Flashpoint, the Fire Inside podcast. Featuring leadership and team building principles designed to ignite your inner fire and help you reach your full potential. On our program, you will learn from professional athletes, military and business experts, inspirational figures, leaders in the fire service, and other top achievers who have reached the pinnacle of success in their chosen fields. And now your host, international speaker and best-selling author, Frank Viscuso. Vince Pacenti, who is a Canadian Olympian and uh, New York Times bestselling author, professional speaker, uh, inducted into the National Speaker Hall of Fame for USA and Canada. And now I understand that, uh, you know, you, you do a, a lot of uh, climbing, which we're going to talk about all of this. And I'm so excited. Uh, Vince, you're the very first Olympian that we had on the show, which makes it really exciting for me. Ironically enough, I went to high school with a kid who had rode in three Olympics uh, for USA. And it was interesting because he didn't go out for the sport of rowing until he was a senior. Oh, really? Ended, wow. Yeah. He, and then he ended up going to uh, Rutgers University, uh, received a rowing scholarship. And from there, right. made several national teams, uh, won world championship. Great. So I know you have kind of a similar story because right. you started as a recreational skier at the age of 26, four years later, you were in the Olympics. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. But, well, your buddy and I, it, it, sometimes we're kind of born with God-given talent and sometimes it finds you. And uh, I had actually raced in Luge in Lake Placid, not far from you and uh, not too far. And um, But I quit. And I watched some buddies of mine march in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Calgary. Now, I, I was involved in the Olympics I was, I got my sports marketing degree. I was uh, doing what I, my dream. I was involved with the Olympic games and I was watching my buddies march in the opening ceremonies and I had a ticket, right? And uh, I think that's probably the first thing I want to say is so often in our business, we, Frank, we, we look at it as if, uh, what do you aspire towards? What do you want to create? What do you want to build? What do you want to be a part of? But very often our motivation comes from what do you never want to experience again, right? What's that line that was just crossed that was saying something has to change, something has to be different. And it was those opening ceremonies at 26 years old that I went, I do not want to go to my grave ever having this feeling of regret again, ever. And wow. so I quit my job. I quit, uh, I actually traveled a bit, went to the Olympics in Seoul and watched uh, athletes marching for the opening ceremonies and uh, in demonstration sports of Taekwondo, went to the Taekwondo event and knew that speed skiing would be a demonstration sport in the Olympics in Alberville uh, three and a half years later, four years later. And so I went, you know what? You won't know unless you try. So I quit everything and then started training. And I learned very quickly that in order to compete for Canada or the U.S., you have to be ranked top. 16 in the world are top half. And those are called Olympic qualifying standards. And I realized that my competition, even though I, I knew nothing about ski racing, right? I it was a cold start. Um, I realized my competition wasn't local or national uh -huh. or even international. It was the top 16 guys in the world. And so when, when you set your mind on who your competition is, <laughs> well, four years later, I was vying for the gold medal in the Olympic Games. I mean, it's testimony that this can be done. I mean, I call it the Yahoo theory. If the Yahoo can do it, so can I. So <laughs> that's pretty awesome. So, did you uh, participate in other sports growing up, or and were they? I, I mean, I would call recreational skiing or Olympic skiing, speed skiing, uh, pretty much a, uh, I guess. Uh, you know, one of those, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, but an extreme sport. For yeah. me, it's an extreme sport because I yes. think you go, what, 135 miles per hour. I don't even know if I've ever went that fast ever on yeah. land in anything. Yeah, you would remember if you did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, yeah, it was an extreme sport. It's, at times people say, you must have a death wish and was like, uh, no, the exact opposite. I mean, it was it was all about getting to the Olympic Games. It was all mm -hmm. directed towards what do you got to do in a competitive landscape? And the thing that really made the difference is to do what the competition's not willing to do. Right. You know, so 
do what the competition's not willing to do. You know what's going on right now? Any entrepreneur, any business, for any athlete, any musician will real, know who their competition is and try and do what that competition's not doing. So we get that share of wallet, that we get that client, that we win that business. But that's what your competition is doing right now. They're trying to do what you're not doing. Yeah. But what if you identified a high performer and did what the competition is not willing to do? So what are the top 16 racers in the world not willing to do? When I identified those things, it wasn't big things. It actually ended up being smart things, right? It, it, you know, that, that Olympic motto is Sidious Altius Fortius, which is Latin for swifter, higher, stronger. And I added a fourth one. It was smartius, right? <laughs> How much smarter can you compete? So, well, what are some of these things that, that you identified that they weren't doing? Yeah, the well, I, I broke it down into, and I didn't realize I did this until after the Olympics. So what I'm going to give you is kind of a formula to accelerate the outcome to a big, hairy, audacious goal, right? In this case, it was getting to the Olympic Games. One was clarity. But clarity had everything to do with the emotional buzz. Like, what's the emotion attached to the goal you're setting out on? Uh, and the emotion was, like I said at the opening, never wanting that sting of regret, right, that feeling. And the second piece was, how extraordinary would it feel to march in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, right? What would that feel like to be with all those other athletes and hear now from, in my case, Canada, and for us to walk out with other Canadian athletes, what would that, what kind of clarity is attached to that emotional buzz? So that would be the first. Uh, the second is commitment. Uh, and it wasn't until as I raced more and more, I realized commitment isn't when you said yes. It's when you realize the level of commitment necessary that comes after yes. And that is when, you know, I don't know if you've ever been married, but that, you can walk down the aisle on a Saturday and go, I'm in, you know, and then all of a sudden realize what that I do really means, right? right and uh, right. and so commitment is more less of an episodic and more of a process. Um, and then the third one was consistency, and that was that do what the competition is not willing to do. So, for example, in answer to your question, that's where those pieces came into play. So I, I split it into four categories. Uh, first was financial, second was physical, third was uh, technical, or in brackets you could put the word research, and then the fourth one was mental. So what are the financial things that the competition's not willing to do? For example, uh, it takes money to get to the Olympic Games. If these, the, some of them household names are people I was racing against, I mean, uh, uh, what kind of financial things are they not willing to do? And nobody sponsors nobody when you're nobody. <laughs> so yeah. I needed to be very, very creative in terms of the financial things I did. Um, you know, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't uh, how much you do, it's how often you do it in many cases. So it was just the consistency under the banner of consistency, constantly thinking, what's the competition not willing to do financially? I would do little videos on VHS tap tapes and get small sponsorship in kind, you know, like, air travel points and, you know, mental training tools. And uh, the second category was uh, physical. So what kind of physical training would the competition not be willing to do? So, for example, I spent less time physical training and more time on the fourth column, mental training. Uh, but when I did physical training, it was stuff like um, uh, mountain biking and going downhill and imagining that I was relaxing as the bike is just squirrely underneath me, right? And so to be able to relax in a stressful scenario, just constantly little things along the way and consistently doing those. Uh, the financial thing, physical, uh, technical, the research thing, man, I was going to the library. How many athletes go to the library, right? Most of them, the competition trying to do what you're not doing, say, coach, what do I do next? Well, I was I was, yeah, I was accessing coaches, but I, I would go to coaches and ask questions the competition wouldn't be willing to ask the coaches. Like, what book would you read? What mental training tactics? I'd go to the library and find out books on aerodynamic principles. I mean, and then the, the fourth piece was mental. And that's where I spent over two hours a day mental training 
uh, biofeedback, sensory deprivation float tanks. I was looking for a gold dot. It just it fell off my phone. But on the back of my phone is a gold dot. And every time I saw that gold dot, it would register the emotional buzz that I set out in the first place, right? Yeah. You know, I'm the fastest speed screen in Canada, top 10 in the world. That was my gold dot. I see a gold dot. I, it's a trigger for an emotional buzz because, well, here's something. <laughs> in a second of time, your conscious mind processes with 2,000 neurons, while in that same second, your subconscious mind is processing with 4 billion neurons. So the ratio between the conscious and subconscious mind is the exact same ratio between an ant and an elephant. The ant is the conscious mind on the back of the elephant. The ant is making decisions on direction for your life, right? We're going west, says the ant. Starts marching on the back of the elephant. But what if the elephant is headed east? You know, which way is the ant really going? East. While you're thinking you're going west. And so to align the ant and the elephant, to have your conscious and subconscious mind aligned in the exact same direction, had everything to do with what I was doing under the mental category, if you will, and consistently things like gold dots, biofeedback, sensory deprivation float tanks, hypnosis programs, meditation, over two hours a day, all directed on creating a truth in the subconscious mind, which was that I was the fastest in Canada, top 10 in the world. Now, is that really true? No. I was a recreational skier. That's the conscious mind. The subconscious mind goes, thank you, when you feed information into it, means you are the architect for your truth. And why not gravitate to that which you believe to be true? You will gravitate to that which you believe to be true. Why not be the architect for that truth? And that's, turns out it worked pretty well. That's amazing. Now, I, I want to mention that this, that's the first time that I had personally been introduced to you. We had a friend that mutually, a mutual friend that introduced us, but the first time I was actually made aware of who you are was through a, the book that you had written, The Ant oh, yeah. and the Elephant. Oh, it really? Okay. Good. Yeah. So, so, and I didn't read the book. I listened to the book. So I listened to you share the story with me as I'm driving down right. the street. My voice um, sounds familiar, I bet, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I'm thinking, well, what a great, first of all, great concept for a book. Yeah. And it is a very well-written book. Thank you. But I like that you're talking a little bit about this. And I want to get to this and dive a little bit deeper because we've not talked about the power of the subconscious mind right. uh, very much on this podcast. Uh, oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, we haven't. And it's all about, I mean, we're all about trying to help people find that inner fire. Yeah. Or, or I should maybe even reignite that spark that was there once. Yeah. And I think this has a lot to do with it. And I know that I have visualized a lot myself. Matter of fact, um, many of the books that I've written, first thing I've done is I would put something down on paper, whether it be the chapter outline, even behind me right now, hanging on the wall right there is a chapter outline for a book that's been an idea for two years that I just finished. Uh -huh. um, but in my mind, it's already been finished. It was just right. a question of bringing it around. Sometimes yeah. I'll design a book cover, whatever it is. I want to make it real before it is real. Right. And a very interesting thing, um, my son, uh, at eight years old, he comes home from school one time, says, Daddy, I wrote a book. I said, oh, yeah? So in school, he writes this book called Banana and Avocado. Cute little book, silly story. But what I did is I illustrated it for him because he asked me, do you think it could be a real book one day? I said, um, yeah, I think it can one day for sure. But I illustrated it. I have a little bit of artistic ability. I illustrated for him, put this little book together, and for his birthday, gave him 20 copies of it. So he's giving them out to his friends, his family members. He's loving it. But what I'm really trying to do, Vince, is make him understand that you can visualize something and make it a reality, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think this all kind of plays into what you're talking about a little bit with the ant and the elephant. But I also want to get into how we influence other people because we're big on trying to build, helping people build teams. Right. So if you want to influence other people, you have to try to find a way to create that alignment as well between their subconscious and conscious mind, right? Exactly. And how do you do that? How do you help other people? All right. Let me start with how you don't do it. <laughs> okay. Because this is the way it's done everywhere. In fact, that's why I created a company called Radical Safety. Uh, and, you know, I would roll firefighters into that. You know, there's all sorts of safety protocol. There's all sorts of checklists we need to go through in order to show up and have 
the behavioral change necessary to have the outcomes we need. Now, predominantly my audience are sales groups and leadership groups, and the same question arises, how do you get people to perform at the highest level? And it all starts with the alignment of the ant and the elephant. Now, here's the problem. Even companies, I've worked with DuPont, for example, and DuPont has these great programs that talk about the importance of having the mindset necessary and you gravitate towards that mindset. Yet the sticking point with everything I'm seeing out there is that what we're doing wrong is taking a bucket of content and saying behavioral change is important. Doing things differently is important. Uh, Example, back in college, uh, I was maybe in my third year and I I kept struggling with procrastination and I couldn't figure out why I was procrastinating. It was such a mystery to me. I went to one professor who I thought, you know, had been doing this for 20 years and I thought, you know, he'd know. All the students you've seen, how do you get them to stop procrastinating? How do you stop procrastinating? And he looked at me and he went, well, you just start. You just do it. And I went, I know that, (laughs) like I know that I could just, but why? Why is that something? And it took me after my college years to realize what we're talking about right now is that unless there's an emotional connection to the outcome and the emotional connection has to be in two facets. One, what you never want to experience again, i.e. holding a ticket for the opening ceremonies, marching guys, watching guys, buddies march in and I'm not. So there's this this pain associated with it. And then the aspirational notion of what would it feel like, the emotion attached to marching in the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games. So that's why I created Radical Safety. When you want to get home to your family at night, what's the truth that you're going to gravitate towards? And so Radical safety was created to bolt on to the beginning of safety training, the beginning of any kind of training, whether it's sales audiences, leadership groups, or whatever. What is your emotional buzz attached to this outcome? What is it to you? Then you don't have to carry a big stick as a leader. Then you don't have to jump up and down and try and get their attention with incentives and all this other stuff. They have an emotional connection to that. The incentives will be juice sure you you know rocket fuel even and say wait i get a bonus if i do this too wait i get uh, this trip this incentive trip if i do this too i mean that's when change happens and so behavioral change is not it's like telling something to do authenticity right you just do authenticity well you don't do authenticity you either are authentic or you're faking it and so uh, this is such a, a, an important first step is that each individual, our leaders have such access to all our employees. This, this whole COVID camping thing we've gone through, right? I mean, there's been such a connection between leaders checking in with people and saying, how you doing? Like, how's your family? We're having access into somebody's world. I have access into your world right now with the backdrop of your room, seeing your awards and credentials and stuff like that, and and see the kind of individual you are from a personal standpoint. And that creates a, a raised level of trust, better relationship, and more of a connection that people have an experience rather than being told what to do. So that's a long answer, but it's, it's really endemic I'm seeing out there is there's just so many, and, and, and it's happening right now with the, as we're recording this, you know, the lock-in is kind of being relaxed. We're in stage two or stage three, whatever the state's the stage is. And um, there's these checklists. Say, do this checklist and behave differently now. It's like, oh, wait. <laughs> no, there's, what's the outcome you want? And so that's a leader's job. And it becomes person to person just like this. Yeah, I like that. And I like what, how you started that with the procrastination when you just said, well, just do it. I heard, I, and I think this is some of the best advice that I ever heard about achieving success because it meant something to me and everybody has that own little, their own little hot button. But somebody said, um, if you want to achieve success, you need to do two things. One, get started. 
and two, stop stopping. Because that was a big <laughs> thing for me. Right. You know, I would start. And when I would stop, it would be ultimately be for, I guess, when I was younger, it's because, hey, I didn't have instant gratification. Right. I didn't get it right away. Oh, it's going to be a little bit harder than I thought. Maybe I'd be distracted, attention deficit disorder, whatever it may be. And it's easier just to do this instead, or I'd make an excuse, whatever it may be. I just, you know, a, level, a lack of maturity. But then when I finally had come to terms with the fact that, oh, wait, um, I, I think every success story has three main components. It's a dream, a struggle, and a prize. You have to get through the struggle. You had to get through many struggles in your life to be as successful as you were, I'm sure. Yeah. And one of the, th I heard you tell a story and I was hoping you could share it with our listeners now about how you had 22 athletes that were trying to walk a right. uh, five foot rope. And, and I think that's a great story. Maybe you can share. Yeah. Here's a story about focus uh, and it, the necessity of unfettered focus, like, do not take your eyes off the point on the wall where you want to go. Do not take your eyes off that emotional connection of where you want to be. And it correlates to a time. There's something in ski racing is called being snowed in, right? <laughs> now, most skiers would be like, woohoo, powder, let's get out there. Every time we had a powder day, we were snowed in, meaning we couldn't train that day. Yeah, we could free ski and have fun, but we were there for fun. Uh, and so we went in a gymnasium and I was actually training with the, the national French national team because our Canadian team wasn't that strong and the French were, and that's a whole other story. So they did me a solid and said, yeah, we'll let you train with us. And we were snowed in the coach had set up a rope that was about 20 feet long. It was about two feet off the ground. And these are, the top skiers in the world, right? These are 21 of the best skiers in the world myself. <laughs> and these guys, I mean, came from skiing royalty. These, just insane talent, right? None of us could walk the length of the, none of us got past five feet on the rope. Nobody. I remember Philippe Guachel, who's part of this ski royalty in France, and he, he was not going to fall off this rope. The rope was going side to side to side to side like this, and he was not going to fall off, but he eventually did. And then finally the coach said, stop. Stop looking at the rope. Pick a point on the end of the wall and do not take your eyes off that. And the first the athlete was, who was his, his turn looked and went, all right. So he looked at the rope, looked at the point on the wall. And as he started, he looked back at the rope, like back on the wall. And he says, stop, stop looking at the rope. Your, your, your feet, how did he say it? Your legs, your feet are at the end of your legs. So they're not going anywhere. <laughs> and the, the rope will always be under your feet. So stop looking at the rope, only look at the point on the wall. And so finally this guy just kind of raised his chin, would not look down, and walk the length of the rope. The rest of us were like, what the hell just happened, right? Did he have a change in skill? In, in less than 15 minutes, all 22 of us walked the length of the rope, and pretty soon, because they're all competitive, we figured out how to walk to the edge of the end of the rope, turn around, look another point in the end of the other wall, and then walk back, right? Did we have a change in skill? No, no, we had a change in focus. Right. And when your focus is unfettered, when you have a point that you have an emotional connection to, meaning that you not only consciously your ant gets it, but your elephant has a buzz, like you have a physical reaction. And an elephant buzz, this emotional buzz, is both that yin and yang. It's that aspirational, that thing that will light you up, just say, how awesome would it be, i.e. marching in the opening ceremonies. But also that anxiety, which was, how the hell am I going to get to these Olympics? Like, I don't, I, I've never ski raced before. I don't have the money. I, you know, I don't, I, I'm just a recreational blue run skier. I mean, all these fears and that combination of those two, the anxiety and the aspirational notion of that. Whew, I mean, it is a, it is such a powerful driving force to be aligned towards. And um, I'll just add one little quick story here. 
Yeah, please. I may I may screw up the golf, golfers' names, but it was something like uh, Jack Nicholas was golfing with Greg Norman, right? Okay. And they had been paired up. Greg Norman was this rising star, and and Jack Nicholas was this existing icon. And they were on the first tee, and uh, and Norman turned to him and said, "God, I'm nervous." <laughs> and Nicholas turned to him and said, "Don't you just love that feeling?" Right, that's that's the feeling. That that's the feeling to go. I love that feeling. That 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 anxiety that's mixed in with anticipation. It's uh, man. There's a book, uh, 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 the War of Art. Yeah, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, and basically, the part of the book is if something scares you, it's important to you. That's why you should go towards it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Now, as you were talking a little bit earlier, you uh, were, you, you just kind of made me think of when I watched the Olympics. And although I never really had that drive to say I want to be in the opening ceremonies, I did often wonder what's going on in the mind of a downhill skier. Right. before they go because i see many of them now they have their headset on they have their eyes closed and you could see almost like they're visualizing the courses that, that have you did you do that were you yeah. visualizing the yeah course I, you I can tell you for a fact what they're thinking uh number one uh there's no fear fear is not even part of the equation although if you really step back and look at it you know you could die <laughs> you know uh but all you're thinking about is how i can go faster now, when you see them visualizing and going through this, uh, what was so advantageous is in every training day, every training module, multiple times a day, I would go through the same routine leading up to performance. When you have a routine that leads up to performance, it's much like uh, if you can picture a trough and a bowling ball. And the trough is, let's say, 20 feet long. And if you take the bowling ball and take your hands away, it will go down that trough and exit that trough at the same speed and the same direction every time. Once you've figured out the routine to set up peak performance in training, then when you compete, it's just letting go of the bowling ball and the routine takes you to that peak performance moment. So uh, superstition for athletes, I'm a hockey fan too, and there's all sorts of superstitions with hockey players. Whether they know it or not, that's part of the routine to set up peak performance. Mm. And so it would be a mistake to go, that's a great idea. When I go to my sale or negotiation or a speech that I'm gonna give, I'm gonna go through a routine. No, you gotta have this routine as the setup for race day, for your, the moment where you have to be on your game. That's my read of what's going on there. And of course, of course, uh, my routine, if for what it's worth, was five steps. One, I always got there early. What's early? Well, when you have a motto of do what the competition's not willing to do, what are the top performers not willing to do? Well, they would get to the race run let's say 45 minutes in advance of their race run. Well, I would get there 60 minutes or 55 minutes, right? Just do what they're not willing to do. Because when you manage stress, peak performance is allowed to flourish. So get there early. Two, I'd go through the same breathing exercise every time. You oxygenate part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is where it kicks into fight, flight, or freeze. Those are stress responses. You will not have peak performance if you're fighting flighting or freezing. <laughs> and so, uh, so I'd go through a deep breathing exercise because what happens when you're in a stressful situation is you're into shallow breathing. That's the autonomic response to the brain to go, something's going wrong, shallow breathing, and then the amygdala takes over. Uh, that's, not, that's a stress response. So that's the second part of the get there early, deep breathing. Then I would visualize or experience outcomes. I use the word visualize, but it really was experience, meaning I brought in the five senses. What did it look like, smell like, taste like? All the five senses 
And I do this to this day prior to every speech, even if it's a virtual thing. I did it prior to this call. (laughs) I go through a five-step routine because what are the outcomes that I want to have for you and your audience, right? Uh, what are the outcomes and uh, you know what is the what does the chair feel like underneath my butt you know all this kind of stuff what do the lights feel like because i've got some studio lights in here uh, the, all the senses create an experience of expectation if that right. makes sense it makes a lot of sense and then uh the fourth one was uh i called it the vortex technique where it was just getting the highest and the best, like filling up my entire body with this energy. And then the fifth one is almost comical. It was a decision to have fun. Just have fun. I mean, I, uh, I do, we all do better when we're enjoying it. Yes. I mean, what the opposite end of the universe from fun is fear, uh, is a stress response, is a, a lack of scarcity. I mean, all that. Where fun is just like, I'm just going to enjoy this. I mean, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to just show up and have fun. Well, and that's one of the things that I like about you, because when I watch your speeches and interviews, you always seem to be in a good mood. Uh, I've talked on a previous podcast about how, and I say this when I speak, I say how many people in this room are overthinkers, and you've probably had similar conversations with your audience, and you'll see 85% of the hands that in a room go up and and I talk about, and I go through this little routine where I talk about how when you're an overthinker, you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, think about all the things that probably won't ever happen and think about the worst case scenario. And, and I, and for me, um, you never get back to sleep when you're an overthinker, but then I kind of found myself in that point where I said, well, you know what? And maybe it comes with age, maybe it comes with wisdom, maybe it comes with maturity, but I found myself in a point where I said, I don't want to allow myself to be overcome by anything. And I want to talk to you about that next, actually. But what I want to do is enjoy the moment. Yeah. And a lot of people talk about balance. I don't know much about balance. What I do know about this is I figured out that what works for me personally, Vince, is when whatever I'm doing at that moment, if I'm writing, if I'm speaking, if I'm fishing with my friends, if I'm coaching my son's baseball team or having this podcast interview with you, I want to be in that moment. Yeah. And that helps prevent me from becoming overwhelmed with all the things that I know that I still have to do. Um, you talked about managing stress earlier. Yeah. How do you prevent yourself from ever becoming overwhelmed? Because you're a very busy man between, you know, what you've done athletically, you climb peaks, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Right. But again, as an author, as a speaker and everything else. Well, I will say I am human. And uh Oh, the past three days, I've felt significantly overwhelmed. I mean, I've been working my ass off. I've been trying to push out value to people. Uh, the spigot that was uh, the keynote speeches got turned off. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the last three, four days, uh, I've been a struggle. I mean, I felt like I've been overwhelmed. And so there's some hacks you do because if there's overwhelm, it means your ant and elephant aren't headed in the same direction. It is the human condition to, to feel like, what am I doing? How do I do this? How, you know, did I lose it? Have I lost it? Am I done? Am I irrelevant? Am I, you know, all this self-limiting beliefs can show up. And uh, so some of the hacks is just to, I, I go for a bike ride, you know, uh, I've got this little creek I made over here that is uh, 26 feet long, and it's by a fire pit now. I live in Dallas now, but uh, too hot to turn on the fire, <laughs> but but um, or to have a fire. But anyway, uh, to sit there and just kind of meditate, uh, and I I actually do meditation. I've done meditation since I was 14. Um, and I will say this: Let me close this piece by saying our brains are like. Uh, a smart snow globe. These flakes know where they need to be. But if you're constantly shaking the snow globe, right, there's only going to be chaos. And it is that the subconscious mind is so freaking aware of what your next step needs to be. It knows where, where uh, equilibrium is. And these 
quakes know where they need to land when you take that pause, when you allow that they just kind of find that place, you know. And so pretty much regularly when I when I get those little triggers of feeling overwhelmed or feeling like I'm hungry, I can't focus or whatever, I go, wait a minute, I've been in front of this screen for two hours or three hours. Uh, I got to step away and, and do something. So these little hacks along the way can really make a difference. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you actually shared that with me because um, I actually had this conversation with my wife today because if somebody is listening to this podcast in 2022, you know, they come across this, they need to know that we are recording this right now and having this conversation on uh, June 16th, 2020. And we are hopefully at the tail end of COVID-19, which you mentioned earlier, but you're right. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I speak about 50 times a year and in the last three months, I've done nothing except a few webcasts, online Zoom meetings, whatever it may be. And it did, it got turned off. And I said to my wife just today, I said, you know, I, I don't know if I'm scared or if I just feel a little bit incomplete because I feel so fulfilled when I'm out there, um, you know, delivering this message that I believe in so passionately about. And mostly I speak to fire departments and, and some businesses as well. But but not having that, it just feels like it took a part away up, you know, apart from me. That being said, uh, what did I do today? I brought my dog for a walk and I remember thinking to myself, it's so nice to have this moment. You know, it's mm -hmm. the, first of all, the first month that we've been in lockdown because of uh, COVID was a, a great month for us because I have three boys and two are very young. So we were able, my wife and I were able to reconnect in a way that we just haven't been able to in a very long time. Yeah, ever maybe, right? Yeah. 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 And then, and then, you know, by the second month, you're like, all right, we need to get back to normalcy. So we started, and you'll appreciate this. I told this story on the previous podcast, being a, a an athlete like you are, um, you know, I coach baseball and uh, my, both my boys play and we bring them out about three to four days a week. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we're at a field and we're working out. And at the very next field over our two other brothers, just like my two boys are brothers, but they're two brothers much older, not than me, but than them. One of them is a professional baseball player and he plays for the Texas Rangers. And he's over there working out yeah. and there's four fields there and it's just them and my boys. And, and we're there every day and hardly anybody's there. And I said to my boys, I said, look around, what do you see? And my one son said, you know, baseball fields. I said, yeah, but what else? And they mentioned the player on the other field. And I said, yeah, you have a professional athlete over there doing the same thing you're doing. Because like you mentioned a little bit earlier, be willing to do what other people aren't doing. And that was the lesson I was sharing with my boys. Yeah. Now they have my genetics, Vince. I don't think they're going to be professional baseball <laughs> players. But as I mentioned many times, the reason why I coach is to try to hopefully, I mean, I'm so passionate about trying to deliver this message to these young players that you can achieve anything you want if you put the work in, the right attitude, the right effort. You can achieve anything. And, um, you know, talking about mindset and resiliency, I know you talk a lot about them as well. But what I want to transition to here is you spent the first half of your life going downhill. <laughs> you Now you're going uphill. All right. Tell me about this. So you're, you've climbed, uh, or I should say, you've, you've summited peaks that have not been climbed before. Is that correct? Right. In 2006, on September 11th of all days, uh, we summited a mountain that had never been climbed. And when I got the phone call about eight months prior from a guy named Jeff Saltz, who's a lifetime adventurer, explorer, anthropologist, he said, Vince, you want to go? And I I said, well, I, I've actually got something. I called it the Yahoo theory earlier. We actually call it the asshole theory. <laughs> if that asshole could do it, so can I. <laughs> so you can edit that out if you have to. But <laughs> I think we're going to leave it. Okay, good. Because <laughs> that's what it's called. Anyway, so, um, yeah, when we stood on the summit, Jeff had, and his crew had chosen – a very non-technical summit, but such remote part of the world in the Himalayas on the India side that to get there was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And was I addicted to the pain and the discomfort and, and all that? Absolutely not. 
what brought me back was the opportunity to share this with other people. Meaning I started to lead these expeditions and then uh, we've got three kids. And when, when Max turned 16, uh, we had chosen a summit um, that was 17-2. And he was being a bit of a jackass, actually. He was uh, rebellious and going in the wrong direction. And he didn't like rules. So the motivation to take him was, you know what? Let Mother Nature, you know, kick your butt and tell, let me know how that works out for you. You know, <laughs> because if you don't like rules and you're in an environment where there are constructs that, you know, are life and death or comfort or discomfort and anything in between, uh, you're going to learn pretty quickly. And he's just a, an absolute charming, savvy, wonderful 22-year-old to be around, right? D yeah. Did that mountain climbing expedition make a big difference? Well, maybe it changed his trajectory three degrees from the port he was sitting in, and he could end up thousands of miles in a different place by that new trajectory. So uh, my middle child or youngest, when she was 16, took her, she was a stud in dancing, but all she did was dancing. Uh, again, a very non-technical climb, again, taking people that had never climbed before. And then I started branding something called the hero's climb, meaning we were going to mountains where we were, not only had never been climbed, but had no name. And so, and, Ego has no place in mountain climbing, none. Uh, ego is much of the reason why people get to the top of Everest and don't get down right. alive. Um, ego is, is in many ways the bane of our existence. And so I called it the hero's climb because I wanted to choose everyday heroes to name the mountains after, meaning you tell us who's your hero and not, not the, the iconic heroes or the sports heroes or the movie star Hollywood heroes. I'm talking about somebody that had ALS in your life and how they elegantly went through that. The first mountain we named after David Mash, quadriplegic from a football injury in high school, went on to be just a great guy, right? Yeah. Married with a kid, started a coffee shop, um, living in Kentucky. Just a great guy. He was nominated by a guy named Dave Kahn. I mean, he, we named the mountain after Dave Mash because an everyday hero is compassionate. They're selfless. They're fearless. They're humble and they're persistent. Mm. How, how, what kind of human experience could we have if we were more humble? Thank you for saying that. I'm going to, I'm going to let you complete that thought, but I want to thank you for saying that because I think it is one of the absolute most important qualities or traits a person can have is humility, especially in my industry uh, as in the fire service, you know, because if you don't have humility, you're going to think you're better than you are. And we have a job like downhill skiing, where if things go bad, the consequences could be severe. Mm -hmm. So I want, I want you to con continue that thought a little bit on humility, if you don't mind. Well, humility is taking ego out of the equation, right? Yeah. I picked that one first because when I looked down the list of all the qualities of heroes and everyday heroes, I kept being gravi gravitated towards humility because think of, think of people you're attracted to the most, right? Are the ones that, that think they're God's gift or are they people that are actually humble? I mean... There's a Chinese proverb as a true leader, if they're talking about, I'm going to mess this up, but something about the river being lower than the, the, the stream, you know, they put themselves at, at the feet of this rather than above anything else. Mm. Um, there's so much upside to being humble. And you, there's a difference between doing humble and being humble, right? There's a yes. lot. I mean, in our business of speaking, oh my God. I can think of three people right now at the top of my head who do humility, right? They yeah. do it. Oh, uh, thank you. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. But uh, oh. yeah, yeah, humility's 
I mean, and, and none of these we do perfectly. You know, there are moments. You know, you're going through my introduction. New York Times best-selling author, Olympian, uh, climbing and naming mountains in the Himalayas. Blah blah blah. You know, I start to go. Wow, wow, I might be kind of a big deal, you know, and then I go slap, slap, and I go, wait, 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 you know, it's, it's about humility. It's like, I was curious at the time. I was not, I was trying to prove anything. I was just curious. And then, so it's, a, it's, we're in this process of humility rather than arriving at it, right? So as yeah. with all the other qualities. I've heard of a friend who's also very successful one time. Uh, talk a little bit about that. And he said, I never believe your own press. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 that always stuck with me because I always thought, you know what, if anybody has anything really good to say about me, that's great. I'm flattered, but it, I'm not going to let it go here because there's someone else that has something that maybe is not so good that they're saying. Yeah. And yeah. I can't take that to heart either. Right. Right. Um, so l- let's say um, you are, you start achieving some success and people are doing some of the things you talked about here with with visualization uh, visualization getting started creating their routine um and they start to achieve success how do they sustain the momentum is it just a question of continue doing the same activity or yeah. is it always look for ways to improve upon all that uh I, I, let me let me add a piece in here because it may answer your question to a degree. Is sometimes we get taken off track. Now, if you don't know exactly where you're headed, if you don't have an emotional buzz of where you're headed, then of course you're going to have hiccups. Of course you're going to have setbacks. Um, so when you talk about that, I want to clarify. You're talking about the the dream or the goal or the idea of this is what I want to accomplish when you know yeah, what yeah that thing that causes both anxiety and aspiration of excitement at the same time that thing yeah. is it's got you know the, the term in business has been bandied around the big hairy audacious goal right yeah. where did that come from Jim Collins maybe I don't know where it came from I've yeah I think good to great I think that was good to great anyway uh yeah, that big, hairy, audacious goal, that's something that scares you and entices you at the same time, right? If you do not have that, then of course you're going to go off track. Uh, if you do have it, then of course you're going to get off track <laughs> because, you know, there's going to be moments where you are going in and, well, I don't know, and maybe you try something. Ask this question. In fact, the ant and the elephant have a conversation at this point. And... The, the question is, is this direction, is this thought, is this person who just showed up, is this opportunity going to take me closer to that emotional buzz, that big, hairy, audacious goal, that thing that has anticipation and anxiety mixed with it, you know, that, that emotional buzz, or is it taking me further away? If it's further away, and it could be as, as simple as a negative thought, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough time, you're too short, too tall, whatever, right? Uh, is, this, is this thought taking me closer to that or further away? If it's further away, the ant says this exact, it's an internal conversation. The ant says to the elephant, the conscious mind says to the subconscious mind, thank you. That's not part of my vision. Now, why say thank you? Well, you got 4 billion neurons every second that think this is a good idea to have this fearful thought or this negative thought or, or to pay attention to it at least. So it's almost honoring your subconscious mind in a humble way and yeah. saying thank you, but that's not part of my vision. My vision is, and then you go through the five senses of what it looks like, smells like, tastes like, of, in this case, story marching in the opening ceremonies of the olympic games right. my new gold dot my and the gold dot is a trigger for that emotional buzz is uh, a mansion by the ocean right uh we live in dallas this mansion is mortgage free am i being materialistic oh well, you might think so but there my wife michelle her right hand is on my left shoulder i can feel her hand on my shoulder i can feel the sun coming over my right uh, up here I can hear the sound of kids playing on the beach, the smell of the surf, the five mm-hmm. senses. We're toasting our success with champagne. I can feel the bubbles as I, I drink them. 
I look in the sliding glass doors behind us and I see how fit and trim we are. I look past those sliding glass doors and I see awards, New York Times bestselling books, things that would pay for this mortgage-free place, a mansion by the ocean. All right. So mm-hmm. when you pivot, and that was a word you and I are hearing all the time, <laughs> but that's what that is, yeah. is it's... Uh, the conscious mind says, thank you to the subconscious mind, but that's not part of my vision. And then you pivot onto the experience of the outcome that you want to create. Man, that, that is the way to stay the course, to be able to, to deal with those times where we are knocked off and, um, and not getting in the direction. And um, I just realized over the past three or four days, I think I forgot to do that. I think I mm-hmm. forgot to go, thank you. That's not part of my vision. There you go. Take my advice. I'm not using it. <laughs> uh, listen, listen. I heard uh, Zig Ziglar one time was asked the question, "How do you how do you get motivated?" He said, "You'll never know how many times I lock myself in my own closet and read my own books." So <laughs> I, I, I get that, and you know, you you are, are making me realize what I'm going to do after this conversation. Is we live about a mile and a half from the ocean, and I'm going to take a ride over there because that is my happy place. Uh-huh. I'm going to take go. a walk down the boardwalk and, and just uh, breathe that ocean air. Say hi for me. <laughs> oh, I definitely will say hi for you. Matter of fact, I'm going to uh, be out in Dallas, I think, uh, in December. I think I'm going to look you up and maybe. Uh, well, stay, yeah, phone. let's stay in touch. Look me up. I'm easy to find. My phone number is everywhere. It's on my love, LinkedIn profile. It's easy. I, I would love to, to do that. And I really want to thank you for coming on and sharing such great stuff with us and our listeners. And I just want to ask, how can a person uh, get a hold of, uh, of your books? Uh, is it your personal website? And I want to recommend The Antony Elephant, but you have several books. What, do you have seven or eight books out? Yeah, I've got seven books. The, the eighth one's just done, and it's coming out soon. It's called The Ant, Elephant, and Earthquake. So yeah. it is uh, an ex- it's the Ant and the Elephant is a great book, as you mentioned. I it's, don't tell the other books, but it's my favorite. <laughs> <Sure. laughs> but uh, yeah, my website, VincePacenti.com, will direct you in those directions. And uh, and uh, check out The Ant, Elephant, and Earthquake, because when you hear this, there's a good chance it'll be uh, in publication. So, Well, that is fantastic. Congratulations on that book. And again, Vince, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And uh, I look forward one day to uh, to meeting you in person and maybe spending some time at your house on the ocean. Yeah, yeah. Well, Frank, you're welcome here in uh, Dallas anytime. And thank you for to all your listeners for tuning in because uh, you did a great job. Great, great questions. Thank you. Oh, thank you for saying that. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a great okay. night. You too. 